Hello and welcome to the third season of How Does the Social Work, the podcast that brings the social back into social work. Our previous season was a collaboration between Brunel University social work students and the Ginger Giraffe user-led cooperative. In this season, our students take full control of the podcast. So, are you ready? Here we go. This season, we will take an international perspective on anti-racist social work. My name is Jeanette, and my co-host for this season is Radhika, and we are both second-year postgraduate social work students at Brunel University London. We will be co-hosting today's episode with Georgina, who's a first-year social work student at Brunel University. Welcome, Georgina. Thank you very much. So our guest today for this episode is Mr. Solomon Adamasim. <laughs> well, thank you very much for trying hard for the pronunciation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it is pronounced Amadasun, A-M-A-D-A-S-U-N. So thank it goes, yeah. What would you prefer to be called? I'll just call me Mr. Solomon. Just call, call me Solomon. I prefer Solomon. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to be discussing Solomon's text, um, his article called Applying Anti-Oppressive Approach to Social Work Practice in Africa, um, Reflections of Nigerian BSW Students. So first, I'd like to welcome Solomon again and just to ask him to give us a brief background on himself, what he's interested in, his area of interest in social work and a little about what led him to be interested in this particular topic. Yes, uh, thank you very much, guys, for having me. Uh, like you pointed out, my name is Solomon Amadasun. I am currently a PhD student at uh, Deakin University in Australia. And my experience and the motivating factors that pushed me into social work, I use the phrase pushed for a very, very uh, cautious reason because uh, the initial plan wasn't for me to study social work. I didn't have that mindset then because uh, back home in Nigeria, the, the field we basically had in social sciences didn't include social work. I mean, social work was a relative field at the time of my study. So given the forces within Nigeria and the systems and their wisdom, I got into social work. And uh, my first year, I found it very, very interesting and very um, enlightening in terms of what it aims to achieve and the, the vision statements and the principles that undergird it. So I was very much keen into learning so much about it. And that sort of motivated me to do very well in my studies and then become successful, uh, basically. So uh, following my graduation, I delved into the area of uh, decolonial social work because Based on my research and based on my studies, I found that most of the models and methods of practice that were extant in Nigeria, I mean, still existing anyway, uh, was largely driven by uh, colonial models, the Western models, uh, particularly UK and uh, US. And so it wasn't really helpful. So I thought I should write something more on the colonial practice. And then from there, I started researching and reading and found other areas worthwhile. And I would say that uh, child welfare was equally interesting, very uh, 
interesting, uh, that's not a word, uh, instructive to me because um, I figured it was quite um, an area that was lacking. And we had so much issues that has to do with children being neglected and abandoned in a society, I mean, in Nigeria. So I figured I could do something in that area. And, and so I had interest in decolonial social work, child welfare, and recently, uh, anti-oppressive practice. Anti-oppressive practice was very, very um, important to me because um, even though the name wasn't really carved as such, because uh, at the time when I was when we studying, we just had a few courses, few modules that uh, dealt with those uh, areas, anti-oppressive practice and human rights and violations and stuff like that. But these were issues that were really pressing in my environment because of, of a great deal of um, oppression, state oppressions and police brutality and all those stuff. So yeah, that's sort of prepared me into the experience I got. What I saw in my society sort of uh, molded me and pushed me into going to this area. So it wasn't something that I had uh, pre-planned. It wasn't pre-packaged. This was something that I saw within my society. I sort of informed me to choose those specific areas, which is the colonial social work I have pointed out before, child welfare, and then anti-oppressive practice. But to cap it all up, I figured that there was very little literature, literally written about uh, social work in Nigeria. So I thought the best way to approach these uh, interests would be to include the Nigerian uh, experience of social work. And so that's the reason why most of the articles that I've written always have a way of uh, sort of amplifying social work as well as making mention of Nigeria or more broadly Africa. So uh, basically these are the things that have kept pushing me on and on uh, to this very day. And uh, speaking about anti-oppressive social work, that is something, an area that I feel is quite vast, um, but we have shortage of um, not just manpower, but technique, methods that would be commensurate in dealing with the problem that they sort of uh, bring out, you know, uh, problems that has to do with brutality, uh, uh, abuse, uh, abuse of power, and, um, you know, women, just those things that are very, very crucial, but, but that most people tend not to speak so much about, gender inequality and all those sort of things. Um, uh, that's what anti-oppressive social work aims to address, but we still don't have people who are knowledgeable about it. We don't have much people who are passionate about it. So I think I'll come to that uh, along the line of our discussion, but basically that's my background. Uh, decolonial social work, um, child welfare, and of course, anti-oppressive practice within the context of Nigeria. Thank you so much for that. Um, that's really impressive. I just wanted to start off by um, just mentioning that you start your article off by stating that uh, social workers need to draw continuously on anti-oppressive on the anti-oppressive approach in their practice, um, else they'll continue to make insignificant contributions when trying to address um, Africa's uh, structure-induced social problems. So I just wanted to um, ask for our listeners who are, may, may not be familiar with the 
social and political climate of Nigeria. Could you just give us a brief background and explanation of the social and political context that you're referring to? Just so that um, yeah, with an idea. Oh, oh okay. Uh, yes, uh, I'm sure that uh, it will not be cliche to say that most part of Africa uh, it's uh, sort of economically disadvantaged uh, because of uh, uh, the history of colonialism as well as the current crop of uh, leadership we have. But largely, um, I want to be too quick to ascribe uh, so much um, um, fault in our leadership. I would say colonialism and the new colonial system, economic system, has sort of uh, robbed Africa of equal participation uh, in the scheme of things in the global sphere. Uh, I sort of emphasize that because it would be so easy to say uh, we have corrupt African leaders. I'm sure you know they are corrupt European leaders or corrupt American leaders. They are all there. But it's the system, the system that has been set in place, sort of deprive uh, Africa from participating. So on that note, uh, Nigeria is economically um, not viable comparably to South Africa or let's say Egypt. That's, that's for the economic aspect. Uh, so the implication of that is that they are going to be last scale unemployment uh, because of the poor economy and which would imply high rate of poverty and uh, insecurity and uh, other social vices that everyone in society tries to um, negotiate and navigate. That's what that. Then in terms of the politics, I would say this is the fourth republic we've had uh, in Nigeria because we gained independence in 1960, um, of course, from um, Britain, uh, who did terrible things here anyway. Um, so from there, we'll be trying to uh, have a successive government. But these um, civilian administration have been toppled uh, by military rule. So Nigeria has a, an hybrid form of government in its history, military and then civilian. And um, so uh, the Fourth Republic commenced in 1999. And um, thankfully, up to this point, we've not had any military interventions, which usually lead to coup and all sort of things. Uh, so uh, from that time, Nigeria had witnessed some sort of growth, growth in terms of, um, I would say, inclusiveness. Inclusiveness, also very sparing with that, it means being able to uh, make a choice politically, being able to hear your view, uh, but there is a limit to that. So um, uh, Nigeria is an open society. It declares that it's a secular state, even though in practice, that may not be entirely correct uh, because there are large sections of uh, people in Nigeria who um, are very, very religious. Uh, like the northern part of Nigeria has Muslim, predominantly Muslim, and then the southern part, they have a large chunk of Christian populations. Then there are some aspects that also oppose the, what do you call it, the African traditional religion and all of that. So Nigeria basically it's a mixed bag of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, but um, regrettably, in recent times, the ugly aspect is beginning to uh, reemerge uh, as a result of. Uh, this uh, power struggle between those in the north 
and those in the South because of the divergent religious views. And so those contests has led to uh, the rise of insurgency in recent times. I think it commenced in 2011 and uh, it's still ongoing, the fight is still ongoing. I'm sure you may have heard about Boko Haram. And if that's not the case, uh, our viewers might equally be aware of, uh, or listeners, I beg your pardon, might equally be aware of um, ISWA. So those terrorist networks are playing significant role in creating sort of uh, destabilization, which, which really leads to displacement in many parts of Nigeria. So yes, like I pointed out, it's a, it's a mixed bag. It has the good part, it has a bad part, it has the ugly part, but the bad uh, part tends to get, tends to generate more attention uh, from the media. Of course, uh, the reason for that is uh, it's well known and it's arguable as to why that is the case. But that's beside the point of making. So basically, excuse me, Nigeria has, uh, is, is described oftentimes in the literature as a lower middle income country. Uh, but from my experience, I would see Nigeria it's um, and the paradox. It's a paradox because it has great resources, yet um, this large number, large percentage of people who are living in poverty. And so that has continued to defy logic for me as to why as to why that's the case. But um, that's the reality. It is what it is. So. Yes, I'm sure that uh, brief summary will be enough to sort of um, give an idea about uh, how the Nigerian society largely is. Okay, thank you very much, Solomon. Um, you made mention of um, Samanti's oppressive social work approaches, and, and you addressed it as um, these anti-oppressive social work seeks to break social divisions and social structures and inequalities in the society. I want to ask that, um, do you think these um, anti-oppressive social work approaches can effectively function in Ghana, Nigeria, Liberia, the yes. Western countries, and in fact, Africa as a whole? Yes, 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 it, it, it can. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why I feel optimistic about it the role that show up can play in Africa. Um, uh, uh, it's because I think that it has so much potential that is yet to be recognized and harnessed by uh, practitioners themselves. And then we can talk about policymakers. But I want to zero down practitioners. Uh, if you look at history, but not too, not too far history, I mean, just recent history from just two, three decades ago, you will find that Part of the reason why Africa were able, uh, African leadership, um, those persons who were involved in uh, governizing for freedom in the 70s and 80s, just decades into their, you know, quote unquote, um, independence, uh, is because they were able to form a union, they were able to form uh, a certain identity among themselves to realize that they have a common goal of trying, of torpedoing of uprooting practices that had been oppressive, that they deemed were oppressive, and of course, then it's traceable to the colonial route. So in the context of what social work can do, I believe if um, social workers recognize their powers, recognize their ability to mobilize people, to play advocacy role by 
uh, orientation by informing people of the resources within their disposal. I'm not talking about material resources, I'm talking about the resources that it's that comes from within the ability to identify your problem and then work collectively to address it. I feel these social workers understand the power that they have, they will be able to make drastic change in Africa. The reason why this is so is because in most African countries, um, their experience is somewhat uniform, perhaps say with the exception of South Africa. And even in the case of South Africa, we also see similar experience as well amongst uh, the black population and other minority groups. I mean, I'm not saying South Africa blacks are a minority, but I'm talking about, yeah, basically people who have been uh, historically marginalized and all of that. So I feel that if social do recognize the, the, the capacity they have and the skills available within their disposal, they, may be, they could be able to make uh, a dramatic change, but they have to, it commences with recognizing it. That's the essence of that paper, because most, like I was trying to point out earlier on the, the intro, in, intro um, most of the work that uh, social workers do here in terms of their approach is too, too Western oriented. It is too formalized that has to rely, it tends to rely so much on um, what's the word, bureaucracy, institutions, where they are sort of regulated. In fact, that's where most social worker, uh, most social work practice is gearing towards. Many uh, students here, practitioners, educators here are advocating for uh, the professionalization of social work. That is the regulation of social work. That's not a cold word for you. But they do not understand the implication of that. If their profession or their practice, I'm being cautious not to call it profession because um, some countries in Africa have not yet classified as such. So that's the reason why this um, uh, phrase comes in, this label comes in. Uh, if they recognize that their feed has so much ability, so much role to play, they would be so much overly concerned with uh, professionalization or recognition from the government, because they will know that the source of oppression of the citizens to which they have sworn to protect is from that same source, the government. So I feel social work, so-called social workers, the educators, importantly, and then practitioners has to recognize that yes, they have the capacity, but it starts from education. It starts from enlightenment. That's the reason why that article didn't focus more on educators' perspective. Because from my experience, why while I was in school, I, I noticed very, very little uh, input from anti-oppressive practice in our course models. That's why I had to interview students who were in their final years or in their penultimate year to sort of get their opinion as to how they've had their experience in terms of uh, being exposed to anti-oppressive practice. And of course, like the reports uh, suggested in that paper, many of them didn't know about it. And so this is how I feel, how I strongly believe um, practitioners um, and the profession as a whole can make drastic change in Africa. Recognize the power, the potency of your feed and by anti-oppressive social work, it is not a, a unique um, approach in itself because it relies also on other similar approaches, like a right-based approach. It is infused in it. So when social workers do 
recognize this and they integrate it into their curriculum and then use it to train future social, social, work, social workers or students, as the case may be, then there will be a bright prospect of making significant change in Africa. But as to whether or not the, the, the method, the approach is going to be a viable force of bringing change in Africa, it is very, 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 very possible, yes. Hi, Solomon, it's Radhika. Um, you've touched about, you said like how we're moving towards like a bioretic westernized social work practice and how social workers can should train other social workers in terms of anti-oppressive um, practice. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you wrote about self-reflective practice um, in social work that student that you encourage students to practice in, such as like the imaginative um, role, so imagining um, them themselves or significant other in um, oppressive customary practice. So my question is, is like, how can, like what advice would you give to, so we're at university students and we're trained to be social workers. So what advice would you give educators to prepare um, students to have the necessary skills and knowledge to challenge anti-oppressive um, practice against, um, as you said in your article, powerless, powerless groups? Educators need to, uh, I, I think the answer to that, to that would be very straightforward and uh, very simple that educators need to uh, realize that uh, the world is changing. And uh, even in Western world, there are certain elements that we see within a society here that sort of warrant the use of uh, those uh, system or train approaches uh, that are effective, that are transforming within society. So educators need to really realize, and I'm using this now broadly, not just focusing on educators in Africa or in Nigeria, generally educators need to realize the fact that the world is changing and that one way social workers can make their voices heard uh, in, in, and make their impact really felt, quite frankly, is by amplifying the uh, necessity of using macro approaches uh, to practice. And with regard to reflectivity, how we can make students um, self-conscious and uh, self-aware of their environment, I don't think that's so much of a problem. And I don't think educators need to do so much in that regard, because I'm very much aware that many individuals uh, in our current world are very exposed to uh, social media. So they are aware of so many issues within the society. And in the course of uh, their viewing of those um, events, as those events unfold, they equally have ideas. And I, I would suggest that one way we can do this as educators is to sort of give students the opportunity to uh, sort of articulate their point and uh, express themselves uh, because uh, knowledge is not unidirectional. It is bidirectional. That's where I see it because it can come from the top and the bottom, from the bottom and the top and all that, uh, as the case may be, vice versa. So um, the, the best approach to dealing with complex challenges is to allow the views of your target audience, in this case, the students, to be heard because they would they could give you a clue that you might add to uh, your module for subsequent students, even in the case that you do not have a particular reflective steering model in your mind. Because I understand this 
Um, and I've, I'm saying this because I've talked with several educators who are back home, and uh, but I'm not so sure here, but back home who had told me uh, in just you know, closely that, look, how do we sort of operationalize this? How do we make it really um, real to students? Because sometimes we tend to focus more on what's uh, laid out in the textbook and all that. As I heard, just allow students to be free to express themselves. Uh, don't go into uh, your classroom assuming that you are the super superman or the superwoman with the sole knowledge to address this uh, problem, uh, which is why I'm very appreciative of this um, invite I got for this podcast. So that's basically one, one way to deal with it. And then uh, try not to be too um, controlling or feeling as though you have all the knowledge, all the answers the worst problem because there are several things that is going on in the world that you may not be familiar with. So uh, going forward, what social work educators can do is to be open to the idea that their students can equally be trainers rather than being exclusively learners. So that's that's my take on that. Thank you. Um, that was really insightful. While we're on the topic of education, you mentioned several times in your text that uh, social work practice in Nigeria was is remedial. Um, you mentioned the influence of British and American sort of that clinical and casework based approach falling short of expectations. Um, but then later you also talk about how the social work curriculum underwent a major change about a decade ago. So um, my question is, is there a major difference um, in social work practice in the past compared to now? Has there been, has the change in the curriculum made a difference in how social work students or practitioners um, operate and how they are able to help service users and um, the people in the country? Is there a difference today or is it, would you say it's the same? Uh, no, it's not the same. It's, it's the, this uh, difference. Yeah, this also, again, is quite um, ambivalent to the difference in that there is a practical effect to the fact that there are some changes that we have made for the revision of our curriculum, yes, but in actual practice, um, when we get to the field, it still reeks of the whole, you know, the old age remedial Western um, model, to the point that um, uh, even when you sort of try to draw attention of the practitioners to the new reality, uh, they, they tend to shake it up, struggle to shake it up. They tend to push back your idea. And part of the reason is not solely because it's solely that the, the fault will be tied to them, to, to be unfair, to say that would be their fault. But I would say the reason is, is the exposure they had, the education they had. And there has been a, a drawback from educators in, in collaboration with the rackety unions we have. I need you to understand that social work is relatively, is, is, I'm being careful not to say it's new because something that is uh, roughly a, a field that has been established in 1976, that would be roughly uh, 40 of approaching 50 years. Now, you, it's difficult for you to claim that's still a very new, new field. So I would say social work is getting to a position of recognition in Africa and in Nigeria in specific, but it still faces serious of drawback because uh, there have been attempts to 
refurbish the, the curriculum to meet the current realities and to deal with the indigenous issues. I, by indigenous, I'm talking about uh, discarding, you know, um, Western or Nigerian or all that. I'm talking about addressing issues that is that are of locality relevance. Uh, you know, these mainstream issues like um, human trafficking, child labor, and um, what have you, poverty, unemployment, and all that. So that's what I mean by indigenous. So she work model curriculum has been sort of uh, modified in that direction, but the change is very slow in the very sense that there are still um, elements within the system that tends to align it closely to sociological causes. Or I don't know if that's a word you guys use over there, probably models, the sociological models, political sciences models, and all those things. Uh, but it's not squarely dealing with these main social problems we have in Nigeria. So what I'm basically saying, why I said it's a big one is because there is a policy document to the effect that we are trying to make moves towards a more indigenous, culturally relevant, uh, 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 what do you call it now, uh, brochures or uh, ways of teaching. But in actual practice, it is still very, very uh, slow. That is for the, the teaching part. But for practice, for practice, it is very, very, um, it's lagging behind. There, is, there has been no, much, no, no changes uh, uh, in, in terms of what show workers can do uh, to address major social problems. It's very low. Unless if perhaps you look at it from the third sector approach. Ideally, I would have said those guys who are in the third sector, that is civil society, uh, NGOs, they are part of social work. But the reason why I'm careful not to also say so is because they do not identify as such because of the, uh, this, this is also one of the issues I wrote in one of the papers that's anyways, uh, it's on another paper in, uh, in uh, British Journal of Social Work as well. It's quite contestable and very intriguing, the history behind it, uh, as to why NGOs who should be ideally be uh, the, the, the offspring, if I, if I may, or the, the, the harm of uh, social work, they are sort of shying away from uh, embracing social work in Nigeria. The history is quite complex. So when you separate those organizations from it, then you can say social work, so it's not making any significant impact in terms of practice to dealing with the major troubles or problems Nigeria has. Uh, so uh, that's just the basic way. So to answer your question directly, it is quite um, complex to specify the area to which social work is now. It has made a commitment to embrace a new curriculum that is sensitive and responsive to current realities, but in reality, is very questionable. Okay, thank you for that. And I think that would be a follow-up question um, for that. Um, because um, based on the um, how you categorize your results on the themes and on the theme two of the anti-oppressive practice in social work education, um, the responses of many students were that of um, the course content lack depth and a lot needed to be done as um, um, not much have been written on anti-oppressive social practices by the Nigerian lecturers. And even in their name on the 
um, placement when they go to field on field works, they lacked some underlying tenets of anti-oppressive social um, work practices. So I'm, I, I just want to know that you think um, there can be a radical turn point for the theoretical and the practical aspects of social work in Nigeria? Yeah, I think so. I, I believe it's First, I'm optimist. I'm optimistic about what social workers can do in Nigeria. I, I feel one way Nigerian uh, practitioners and educators, I'm really uh, making a push for educators because I, I believe the foundation for making any meaningful change in society will come from knowledge. Uh, one way educators can really make, academics can make significant change uh, would be to try to create this forum for, uh, let's say, start from brainstorming. Uh, just having the deliberations and then before you take it to seminar or conference level with critical stakeholders, including those those uh, of players, those in the NGOs. Because whether or not we like it, they are, the, the work they do is representative of social work. Now, it's the whole snap falls on educators uh, as well as the uh, very shaky organizations Nigeria has uh, organizations that uh, purport to represent social work in Nigeria. Um, uh, when all of these things are taken into consideration, these, these stakeholders are in, involved in the planning of not just the curriculum, but also how to move the profession forward in terms of being recognized. Because um, it is, I feel strongly that it's what social workers are able to do within their immediate society, their environment, that would have, you know, you know, give them this uh, um, reciprocal uh, value in, in the society to which they serve. I'm sure that's part of the reason why NGO players, uh, community development practitioners, do have uh, strong standing, enduring standing to the general population because those guys are very good in um, grassroots mobilization, uh, in advocacy and all this stuff. Those things are very, very important and it's something we cannot really shy away from. And I feel when there is this urgency among all the stakeholders, but being pushed by educators, then social work can make a very strong difference in Nigeria. And let me just say this quickly. Uh, I recall in the 80s, uh, the profession of law uh, did not have had similar experience as social work is because it wasn't really uh, pronounced back then. Uh, uh, I was told this by people who have had experience here in Nigeria and legal areas that made it in their reports and their writing as well. But they were able to gain public value and recognition as a result of mobilization, you know, advocacy against the military regimes and against the misgovernance they had uh, at the time. And so a lot of people who were um, from the outside, I mean, those who were uh, spectators, as they would like to call them, politics, just sort of felt connected to these uh, human rights advocates, as they were called then. Or, you know, so that's why uh, along the line, uh, people started having this strong affinity towards them because they felt they were able to represent their voice. What if social workers play that role? In fact, social workers can do that even much better than lawyers because social workers. Um, it's an athletic feed, a profession that has a whole lot of um, skill sets. 
to draw from. They can, can tap in from the economic, um, how to use the economic principles to address um, economic challenges or financial difficulties in society. Can tap in from knowledge about, from politics, knowledge from geography, and all of those things are within the uh, the, the kit, two kits of social workers. So once they do recognize that the, their constituents are the people and not the organizations they serve or they work for, I mean, or the government that is trying to co-opt them into you know, this uh, bureaucratic setup to give them targets or give them quotas or, or even private entities that are trying to sort of fashion out their own policies that sometimes might be against even the values and principles of social work. Once you show a concept of that, that people is, are, are the backbone upon which their profession rests on, they would be able to make so much change, so much change in such a way that um, they can be relied upon and called upon to make, um, uh, 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 to speak in, on events that would be of significance to the people that can alter the life of the people, that is, that can change the status quo. And so once social workers recognize this power, I'm sure the authorities begin to take them very seriously uh, in any setting they find themselves to be. So uh, yes, basically that's, that's that, that question. Thank you for that. Um, I think that is, it's very helpful for not just uh, students and not just social workers in Nigeria, but everywhere, just knowing that as social workers, you have um, the power to really, you know, sort of like force authorities and force people to really stop and listen to what what we're saying and, and really a cause change, effective change. So I think that was, um, it's really helpful. And I hope that that's something that we can all remember that, you know, like as a profession and just together that we can really create effective change. Um, so Georgina touched on um, the responses of uh, the students. So while we are on that topic, I'd like to just talk about the study that um, you discuss in your in your text and just for you to and just ask if you can give us a little background of what your objective was and just the results and findings that you talk about in your article. Oh I, well, I've I've written I've written uh, so much to the point that I can't really uh, figure out. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, right now I also have a project funded by the International Association of Schools of Social Work. It's also about decolonial social work in Nigeria. So there's so many projects that I'm currently working on that I basically would say I can't be able to recall the precise objective of that particular study because it's been, it's been two years. So refresh my memory, please. So um, you talk about, so in the study, um, in your objective, you talk about wanting to explore and describe Nigerian social work students, um, their reflections about how they conceptualize oh. anti-oppressive social work, um, their yeah. experiences of anti-oppressive practice yeah. in relation to their education and training, and how they intend to practice that perspective once they qualify. That was... Uh, the main objectives that you mm. were um, discussing and then later on you sort of provide some themes so that you found so you talked about conceptualizing anti-oppressive practice you also talked about social work education and talked about anti-oppressive practice being embedded in professional training and education um, 
goes through field placement, they have coursework. Um, and you talked about quite a bit. So I guess um, the main question would just be, I'm not sure if you remember what exactly there you found in terms of what the, what the student did, did the students feel like they were well equipped? Yeah, I, 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 I think, again, the way we deal with uh, teaching, I'm not really sure about uh, other climes, but I, I can speak very well for Nigeria. The way we deal with teaching in Nigeria is to assume that students are ill-equipped um, once they come into a field. I, I don't think that's uh, totally accurate because uh, people, people generally do have experience, even if uh, there are people who tend to sort of uh, dismiss, and it's quite awful for uh, anyone in position of authority or power to sort of um, relegate anybody uh, simply because a person may not be privileged to have the, uh, the education or the uh, training or whatever you want to call it uh, that you do have. Uh, and so I feel that sense of um, um, sort of, uh, I think it's condescending to prejudice to sort of assume the students have no idea and therefore, unless you teach them, I think that's very, very problematic. And so the approach that I took in that study was to uh, assume, uh, make the assumption that students were really quite knowledgeable, even though I was aware prior to the study that that particular uh, the, the discourse, discussion of the emphasis anti-oppressive uh, practice wasn't something that's been really emphasized in the curriculum because it wasn't even available in the brochure. And so I felt, uh, let me just sort of uh, see what they would have to say in this regard. And I was quite interested. Um, the final was quite interesting. And I was, I wouldn't say I was really shocked because I really had a, a, an open mind uh, going into that study. Uh, but I was really, um, I would say, very glad that the students were able to uh, recount their experiences. They've seen, like, you know, uh, this comes back to the point I was making earlier about the introduction. Generally, just being in an environment where you see so many ease playing out, they are unfolding your eyes, would sort of give you a clue as to anything that is that bears any semblance to those things that it, they, they intend to address. So anti-oppressive practice to something we just sort of discussed, like I told them just in your own idea as the world operates, as the world sound, how would you qualify, how would you define anti-oppressive practice? And so that's how we started. Uh, uh, so it's really an open, uh, open-ended question that there wasn't, I didn't feel it was appropriate to sort of uh, go with this uh, notion that this is what's right and this is what's wrong. I just wanted them to express themselves. And so they were able to do that and do it very, very interestingly. And so for me, I think those students know so much about, um, they know at least, uh, to say fairly many things about anti-oppressive practice within the context of how uh, people in the society have been uh, marginalized, oppressed, uh, uh, suppressed. And uh, uh, I mean, uh, often the, the uh, I'm not sure if I would say the victims, but uh, the, uh, the target recipients of these harmful practices in society uh, usually uh, free people and particularly women and girls and um, yes students knew so much about it and were able to recollect it many of them drew uh, insight from 
not just what it's seen, but even from within their families to sort of uh, uh, narrate what they feel is anti-oppressive practice. And I, I, based on that, I feel many students, even if these courses might not be really well you know, expanded on the discourse in their classes, they do have an idea of what anti-oppressive practices. And so on the basis of that, I feel they can be able to practice uh, from uh, this perspective, but they need the push. Because once they're done with the education, uh, I don't know, I, I think the way it's appraised in the UK or Western world is that they, they have this sort of, uh, what do you call it, a, a licensing board or licensure or whatever, uh, that sort of, uh, um, uh, induction or something that you know, gives you this uh, uh, sense of uh, profession, being, belonging to a professional body. But that's not the case in Nigeria and, of course, in many African countries. So there's the peculiarities. So oftentimes they go out, they, they, they graduate from uh, their studies and then go back to society unprotected, without, um, without a sense of professionalism without a sense of belonging. And so one way of reviving this belonging is through, like I suggested earlier, through uh, constant um, connections from their schools, as well as to uh, the very weak professional body. It's still very weak. It is not strong. So my point is, I guess my point I'm making is, is that uh, those People who are in the Western world who have this opportunity or, or privilege of having a very strong professional bodies have a lot to do to sort of to sort of uh, challenge oppressive practices in their society more than you would expect people in Africa to do because they don't have the uh, the uh, I don't want to say the resources but they don't really have the people the personnel uh, to uh, form a cohesive body to address this problem. That is why it's very easy for uh, some um, individuals to go out and protest certain e-wisdom noted in their, their communities and then get wound up and you know, thrown in prison, in jail for, you know, just thrown in, in jail for, you know, it's arbitral, 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 uh, arbitrary. So it's, it's quite uh, frightening here for many people to delve into it. So it, it takes one to be extremely courageous to, um, stage a protest here, then it would happen in a developed world because of uh, the sort of laws that is giving them backing. So basically the question, I would say that uh, students, based on the interaction I had with them, they understand what anti-oppressive practice is, but they still need uh, further um, uh, training, further follow-up uh, sense of belonging uh, but the, these are these are things that are not currently currently available, fortunately, and and so that's the reason why many uh, people who are uh, graduated from social work don't even practice social work in Nigeria. Don't the few ones who do tend to just go into public uh, public service that is available, uh, that is government uh, establishment, and of course in those government establishment, I mean, it's, it's telling what will be there. The, the outcome, they don't practice uh, uh, to address the major social problems. Instead, they just try to, you know, fit in and do as they be told in, in established in government uh, of uh, civil service and all that. So that's that's a problem. That's a challenge we are having. 
in Nigeria. And I feel that when educators are able to collaborate with NGOs, this is very, very important. The way I see it, if they're able to co collaborate with NGOs, with um, these nonprofits, they will be able to make very, very strong impact. In fact, that's one of the things that really played, uh, played out in uh, the BLM movement. It was, it was, it was global. Uh, so that tells you the power of advocacy. That tells you the power of uh, this sector. But uh, at, in Nigeria, it's the social workers have not really harnessed that um, opportunities that lies ahead of them. So I think that's that's basically basic the situation. Um, thank you for that. And just touching on what you mentioned. So given the, you know, um, what you've discussed in terms of sometimes, you know, challenging, you know, what the government or having a protest could potentially be quite um, detrimental for some, um, possibly ending up in jail. Do you think that that's a little bit of a deterrent for people to become social workers or are, um, are there, is social work something that lots of students are taking up? Or do you think that possibly the climate is maybe deterring people from taking up the profession? The way, the way it is, it, 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 it could go both ways. It, it could be uh, a motivating factor. It could, it could also be deterrent. I mean, it, the, the system itself, I would say, helps to win out those, helps to separate those who are really passionate about it, who understands what the risks are and the uh, challenges could be, and those who uh, might have other motives for going to defeat. So if there are those who feel that this is not an area that, is, that, is, that they will quite struggle with, that they wouldn't really do well uh, because they don't really have that, uh, you know, um, the, the way without to stand certain pressures, so yes, they, they might fall out. Uh, but I also feel, I still feel that there are many people who are still involved in, in, in the profession, who are still uh, um, engaging practicing and social workers uh, because one, they are aware of this risk and so they have, they have a passion for it. And then secondly, um, the situation in Nigeria in, in terms of securing admissions to uh, other institutions to study any field is quite different uh, in the very sense that you might choose to study this particular field, then the authorities, the school administrators would you know, um, suggest, I'm using that mildly, would suggest other field for you because basically they force you to choose it. If you don't, it's a matter of give and take. If you don't choose it, then you forfeit your admission, all of that. So those are some of the, uh, so, uh, again, in three cases that applies to the Nigerian situations. But other than that, I would say that the system itself, the um, reality in terms of the risk involved in becoming a social worker in Nigeria, it's, 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 it's good, it's good currently because it helps to balance, balance those who are really passionate about it and those who are not. So if you realize that this is an area you feel you can excel by being an advocate, by being um, an agent that can make transformative change in society. Yes, this, this would be very fitting. And I think um, from my records, when I left last, when I left uh, some months ago, I noted that we had more social work students than in my set. I recall that my set were um, roughly 60, thereabouts, 60s, within 60 something. Yeah, that's, that's the actual count. But when I was living, we had 115 
precisely uh, students who were who were social. So I I feel I feel there are more students coming in, and I feel passion is a motivating factor, and which is why I'm very optimistic about the future because these people are coming for the sake of trying to make change. Uh, but my concern is laying emphasis on addressing macro problem rather than uh, uh, seeing them graduate and then go to the civil service or go to uh, agencies that are not really inclined towards social justice advocacy and all that. So uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Hi, um, you mentioned about the um, macro level and you said about the macro focus in the practice approach. Could you just explain a bit more what the macro focus is when addressing anti-oppressive social work practice? Okay, I, I I'll address, I will explain this by first trying to point out what a micro and oppressive practice would be. The micro name is, is, is telling is when you're dealing with, uh, uh, let's say, for instance, uh, a woman who has undergone abuse, physical, verbal, any sort of abuse in her home, uh, domestic abuse in our home, and you're trying to intervene and trying to sort out the issues and trying to understand what might have led to it and how you can be able to offer uh, a really uh, pragmatic help to her to get her to a safe place. That would be a micro-intervention. And it becomes a micro-anti-oppressive practice when, in the course of your findings from her, you go to your agency and then you try to see how you'll be able to um, make a case for her because you feel that she's in an abusive uh, relationship or in an abusive environment. So you are trying to uh, fight against the oppression that she's facing within her home. That's a micro oppressive practice. But the micro one has to deal with what affects the larger sections of society. For instance, uh, that, that's why I was trying to explain it down that it has a broader layer to it. It could be anti-racist, it could be uh, something that has to do with human rights violations. Anti a macro anti-oppressive practice is not a standalone, like, uh, it doesn't stand in isolation. It draws from everything within society that is touching, that is fundamental, that other persons can become victims of or perpetrators of. So a macro practice in this regard would mean uh, practice that seeks to address the root cause of a major social problem through attention driving, bring, drawing attention to it, having a conversation about it, uh, regularly pointing out the ease of a particular problem that fits that narrative, that fits that framework, uh, be it um, police brutality, for instance. I'm very, very, it's not just a recurring phenomenon in Western world, it's very, very common here. Police brutality, uh, illegal arrest, all those uh, sort of things that sort of uh, create this opportunity for abuse of one's position or abuse of one's power. Those things are really, those are, those are macro issues because it affects people overall. And even if it doesn't affect people overall, the, very, the mere fact that you've experienced it, the mere fact that you have uh, witnessed it, also has its own traumatic, um, traumatic uh, uh, effects on people who, who seize it. So uh, it's, it's, it's a macro approach really is about, you know, um, writing wrongs within a broader social framework. I'm sure the case of George Floyd, uh, just as, as an example, 
happened to him only. So we can argue that it's a microbe. But the fact that it was in open space, it was in the public glare, and a lot of people had access to it, people were traumatized by it. It, become, it became a macro issue because it had been occurring in that society, but the society decided to turn a blind, uh, blind eye to it. So that's, that's the difference between a micro and a macro. The micro is usually domestic and is usually shared between the caregiver or uh, the, the officer in charge, the case worker, as, and the, uh, the, the victims. But a macro is something that um, is it's broad. So yeah, that's the difference. Thank you for that insightful response. Also, um, in the article, you made mention of some practice models as um, they were agencies where students were being sent there to for, for their field work practices. And instances where some of them lacked some modules and some lacked some information about social work. I want to know if these agencies and social workers and even the students themselves and other resource persons can team up to conduct an in-depth field work practice and, and students coming in to use these modules learned in gaining understanding of what anti-oppressive social work is or I want to know that has there been instances where these things have already happened in Nigeria? I'm not really sure I got the question right, but uh, I want to assume that we are trying to figure out if those agencies are involved in anti-oppressive practice and if they do inform their students about it, correct? Yes, yes, please. Yes, I, I, I think there are agencies that are very much involved in student justice issues in Nigeria, many agencies. But one problem I realized, one um, uh, challenge that I figured out in the course of that in interaction is that the feedback uh, the feedback operations in Nigeria, in the university where I focused on, so let me not be too, um, let me not generalize that. Um, that's particular school, that particular schools, the, the way they lay out their uh, field practice was, it's quite, um, I don't want to be too uh, direct by saying this is what it is, uh, but, but it's, it's very problematic in the very sense that oftentimes they do not post student or assign students to agencies where students feel they would be able to do very well, would be able to excel very well. So basically students might have interest in dealing with social justice issues or dealing with human rights issues or dealing with anti-oppressive, fighting oppressive practices. And in these cases, oftentimes they, they might want to go to non-government agencies, they might want to go to uh, establishment like police stations where these things are occurring so that they can get insight as to how cases like this eventually uh, are handled or even criminal justice system or prisons and all that. But the way those um, feed practice office uh, does assign students is, is arbitrary. They, they send students oftentimes to public civil service, these um, government-owned establishments where what they mostly do, it's what we'll be talking about, the case the, the casework case work approach uh, where basically you know uh, the western model is just coming uh, just is interactive uh, it, it doesn't really address the root cause of it and oftentimes uh, I don't really want to go into um, what they do there their parties there uh, but it's, it's obvious that it has not really helped to mold Nigeria to where it should be in terms of fighting against social ease so uh, so that's what the agency does. So 
And it was part of our recommendation we had, I think, uh, two years ago. Uh, that was, yeah, two years during the, uh, just immediately after the pandemic was, uh, was uh, relaxed. Uh, uh, we had our head of departments to try and create an avenue where we match students with their needs. So initially, what, we, what the, the parish was, was, was the, the, uh, the, the field unit itself, the field coordinator, yeah, that's the word, I'm trying to remember that name. The field coordinator herself tend to decide wherever students wants to go. He doesn't, he, he didn't seek the, uh, the consent of students uh, before making those sort of, uh, 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 making those decisions. So what we decided on was to allow students to write to us, tell us where they feel they will be able to excel well, and also give a room for them to change the agency they are during their field practicum in the event that it doesn't really match with the, their expectations. So that was, that was the current practice when I left uh, the school. Of course, the school by the school of, uh, I mean, the university I was practicing, I was teaching on. So that's, that's the experience. But in other institutions, I'm not really aware. I can only speak about that about that one. And I'm hoping and I'm trusting that the practice would uh, be strengthened and get better uh, for uh, the next batch of students who are going in. So yes, there are agencies that are involved in social justice uh, practice, uh, but the, the the earlier practice approach was uh, was was to sort of impose impose on students what the uh, the the department. It's interesting in, in, in Western what they call it schools of social work, but the way they call it, so these are terminologies, just uh, language. Uh, the way they call it over there is departments, so departments, universities, yeah. So Department of Social Work in my university uh, used to impose, but now they've changed it two years back. So I hope uh, that when that, when that practice is continued and uh, there will be a, a, a strong turnaround in terms of how the feed itself, the profession itself, gets uh, involved in social justice movement within Nigeria. Of course, yes, that would be something that would be very worthwhile to express because uh, like we discussed earlier, many students are already coming in to the field. And I feel that there is great opportunity um, for social workers in Nigeria because of the, uh, the, the reputation that the country itself had had attained um, uh, politically and of course uh, uh, economic wise and the with the zeal and compassion that I feel that the Nigerian situation has prepared many students to go into that field. The, there is a very strong chance that things will happen and that many students would have a, a value within the Nigerian state. It's just a matter of time and it's a matter of uh, being open to share ideas and collaborate with people who had left the system, who had left education uh, for years, because I, I feel that many NGOs operators now, um, uh, they might not have, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I'm making a generic statement, they might not have um, been spe specialized, they might not have specialized in social work, as the case may be, they might have, they might have read other similar fields that are closed, or even distant fee, uh, professions, uh, feeds, but it is, I think the bonus is on social workers, educators, and the unions, the, the not so strong wobbling unions we have to create an avenue for conference, to create an avenue for having seminars, uh, you know, um, interprofessional dialogue by drawing 
their attention of NGOs into their fold so that they will realize that they have professional backup. Once there is strong collaborations among uh, various uh, stakeholders, I feel I think social workers can do a lot as against the current um, uh, notion that uh, NGOs is quite separate, uh, civil uh, uh, community development is uh, separate, and then social work is separate. No. Okay. I also want to ask um, about um, the results of your discussion on the team three of practicing from an anti-oppressive perspective. Um, where um, some of the students pointed out that um, from their experience, many people are being oppressed and afraid to speak up um, how, how they have been abused or what is going on in their lives. I want to know if, if these um, challenging oppressive policies, are they sometimes politically inclined? They are political, but the, the political aspect of it is the manifestation, it's what you see. Uh, but uh, um, uh, something led to it. It is, I think, it's rooted in in in, in uh, the norms that thankfully is changing. The norms that many um, households hold in in um, in Africa, basically, and um, in just patriarchal society, the, the norms is always exist. Uh, certain uh, uh, individuals that the culture feel shouldn't have a voice uh, in, in society. And so because of those uh, norms that now manifest in gender roles and all of those things, eventually everyone is socialized into thinking that a certain group cannot do this, why those who are, who, who are other belongs to that group can't do it, tends to feed into reality in, in society as a whole. Whether it's economic wise, education, or uh, politics, it, it, they all manifest. So, the point I'm trying to make is that the root of this um, uh, political, um, economic, and social uh, marginalization or oppression is rooted in culture. Culture, it may not be exclusively, but culture has played a very, very significant role in trying to modify behavior and trying to um, inculcate ideas on people. Uh, form the notion on people that um, certain groups shouldn't be associated with them. These individuals by virtue of their birth or by uh, caste or coloration or ethnicity or stuff like that, they are sort of inferior, you know? So once people buy, once people have been acculturated in that, uh, with that idea, of course, you'd expect the reality to manifest in politics, which is what I was trying to say. That it eventually play out in politics, to play out in, uh, in resource allocation and all those things. So yes, um, anti-oppressive practice, uh, it has, has really fed off from harmful normative, normative ideas, normative notion that is still very, very difficult to uproot in Nigeria. And while we can do that, it's true, of course, before this interaction, I said, just as well, I was beginning, I said, education, constant uh, dialogue, discussion is one way we can be able to make a very, very uh, dramatic change in the lives of people who listen to us and who we, and who in the process we are recording, uh, discussing amongst ourselves. So uh, the Nigerian situation is not far cry from that. It's not, it's not, it's not really detached from it. Uh, culture has really fed into the idea that certain groups are more powerful and by virtue of that, you know, once there is this categorization of, of the powerful and then the powerless, 
there is always the chances that uh, oppression, will, of course, that's, that's what feeds oppression. And that's the, the whole idea of social justice and equality and uh, freedom and liberty and all that, is that everybody has a level playing field to uh, carve a path for themselves. But because there is this idea that has been fed up by culture, that certain individuals are more powerful and more privileged, of course, it will lead to oppression, it will lead to suppression, it will lead to marginalization and exploitation and all the like. So, Yes, that's that's my response to that. Thanks so much for that, Solomon. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But just before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to in just to let us know or just to uh, share with the podcast for both future pre- future practitioners and current social workers now? Is there anything else that you would like to share? What I would like to say is to first and, first and foremost, I will try to uh, appeal to educators. It's an appeal to allow students to, to give students the opportunity to reflect on what they've learned, to give students the opportunity to have their say in their studies so that they will, be, they will feel part and parcel of the education process. Because once they feel that, they see that there is, their, their views are heard, their views are valued, uh, they will be much more inclined to uh, get involved in anti-oppressive practice or in any practice at all, in any area of interest that they might be forward to practice in and that's for that then lastly i want to thank you guys for the work you guys are doing it's just interesting and it's, uh and it's remarkable that uh, brunei university is taking this initiative to you know allow you guys to have a podcast and to interact with people in the feed educators uh, researchers and all of that so i'm really really uh, thankful that you guys have sought my views and uh, i have just a little things to say unfortunately but thank you guys you guys have been great Thank you so much. And just um, to say, your, you know, your insight has been really helpful and you've really helped to just further social, current social work students here at Brunel and hopefully other social workers and future uh, practitioners, just there are viewpoints and our perspectives on how to think about um, anti-oppressive practice, not just in the West here, but just looking at perspectives in other parts of the world. Yeah. I'd like to thank our guest Solomon today and to our co-host Georgina. Thank you for joining us. How Does the Social Work is produced by Yohai Hakak and edited by Vimal Dalal. If you liked our podcast, please give us a like and share it with your friends. To find out more about Brunel's Social Work programme, please check out our webpages at brunel.ac.uk forward slash social work or follow us on Facebook or Twitter from Radhika and Jade and goodbye until our next episode.